Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Figile Lengwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Britain votes on EU referendum to remain or leave. South Africa's electoral body condemns violent protests in Pretoria. In economics, Emirates Global Aluminium to press ahead with Guinea Boxit Mine. And in sports news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana advanced to the Safa Cup final. But first up, the news with Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The United Nations says renewed violence is forcing thousands of people in the Central African Republic to flee to neighboring Chad and Cameroon. Thousands more are moving into displaced camps in the Bimbo area in Ombela Mpoko Prefecture because of a recent flare-up of violence in the country's capital, Bangui. Several humanitarian partners have limited or temporarily suspended the activities. A UN independent expert has called on armed groups to be disarmed and the rule of law restored. A senior UN official says the security situation in South Sudan remains very volatile and is characterized by human rights violations and abuse. Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights Kate Gilmore spoke during an interactive dialogue of the Human Rights Council. Ethnically targeted clashes were triggered in December 2013 when political tensions fled between the two top leaders of Africa's newest country. Gilmore says violence has continued while civilians are caught in the middle of fighting between government forces and armed groups. Current conflict has its roots in the absence of accountability for past violations. Without accountability, now a sustainable peace for South Sudan will remain elusive in the future with grave consequences for its people. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission has sent a strong warning to political parties that acts of violence and intimidation during election campaigning will not be tolerated. IC Chairperson Glenn Mashinini says those parties which will be found infringing the Electoral Code of Conduct will be disqualified. Mashinini was speaking at the signing ceremony of the Electoral Code of Conduct in Johannesburg. Electoral Commission has noted with grave concern the rising level of violence and intimidation which are characterizing political and campaign activities ahead of our 2016 municipal elections. The Electoral Commission therefore condemns in strongest possible terms and any behavior which contravenes the Electoral Code of Conduct Police in South Africa have meanwhile warned that those who are considering embarking on violent protests in townships 
will be harshly dealt with. They've confirmed that two people have been shot dead while looting a store in a township in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. More than 40 others have been arrested following the violence in the troubled Tswane metro municipality. The protest started after the ruling ANC announced that Member of Parliament Toko Dodiza was the party's mayoral candidate for the, uh, for the metro. Tswane Metro Police Executive Director Consul Kleine says they are investigating criminal activities. What we can also confirm is that recapping from last night, two deaths that happened in Mamelodi that were related to the looting. But obviously investigations into what actually happened and what is going to be done going forward are being handled by the SAPS, but we can officially confirm that there were two deaths resulting from the disturbances in Mamelodi. And finally, two foreigners kidnapped in southeast Nigeria have managed to escape. A former South African now living in New Zealand, two Australians and two Nigerians abducted after an attack on the vehicle, which claimed the life of the driver. It's not yet clear if the former South African was among those who escaped. The men were contractors for an international cement company. They were attacked on the outskirts of the city of Calabarat. Police say the kidnappers have yet to contact police. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Britons are going to the polls in an in-or-out EU referendum today. Prime Minister David Cameron says the UK will be stronger if the votes to remain a member of the EU vote Leave campaigner, former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, says on Thursday, Thursday can become Britain's Independence Day. Ollie Barrett reports from London. In the final hours of campaigning, British Prime Minister David Cameron crisscrossed the country, selling the idea the UK will be stronger in the European Union than outside it. Think of one word that brings it all into one, which is together. Because frankly, if we want a bigger economy and more jobs, we're better if we do it together. If we want to fight climate change, we're better if we do it together. If we want to win against the terrorists and keep our country safe, we're better if we do it together. Leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage, has been campaigning for a Brexit his whole political career. He's convinced his Leave side have the momentum. It has at times been a long and quite lonely and difficult road, but I'm enormously proud of the way in which we managed to change British politics, and I hope it reaps a huge dividend for our nation. Polls suggest it could be close. Betting markets have begun to swing towards a victory for the Remain camp. No one really knows. Much of the campaign has been dominated by claims from Remain that the economy would be hurt in the event of a Brexit. Leave say that's scaremongering. World First economist Jeremy Cook says businesses have been working up contingency plans. Risk committees from FTSE 100 companies to SMEs are sat there going, what is going to happen to us on June 24th if the vote comes out that we are leaving the leaving the EU, be that a, a business that trades internationally or simply uh, or simply is looking to trade internationally? We're looking at uh, the risks that you know a weakened sterling, uh, inc- increased tariffs, for example, may have on the business landscape. Immigration has been a central issue too, with Leave saying quitting the EU is the only way to bring numbers down from record levels. 
When it comes down to it, Professor Tony Travis from the London School of Economics says voters are likely to go with their own instinct. My guess is, and most of the, you know, anecdotally, a lot of the public just sees all of this as noise. They can't tell who's telling the truth, who isn't. There are various efforts at fact-checking. I think some of those may have some traction. But I think in the end, people will vote on the basis of how they feel. And emotions have run high throughout the campaign. The murder of MP Joe Cox a week before the referendum may have affected the way some people vote. Both main political parties, the Conservatives and Labour, have been divided internally over the campaign. And so whatever the result come Friday political turmoil may ensue. Ollie Barrett, London. Doesn't. It's 8.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. As Britain heads to the polls today for the historic decision on whether the country should remain part of the European Union or leave the bloc, one issue has been front and centre of the Leave campaign immigration. Since 2005, when the citizens of EU countries were allowed to live and work freely in member states, hundreds of thousands of Europeans, many from eastern countries, have settled in the UK, establishing businesses and changing the nature of some communities. While this has boosted the number of workers paying taxes, it has also put a strain on local services such as schools and hospitals. From London, Catherine Drew reports. <laughs> Otto Kirizel hosts a three-hour show every day on PRL 24, a Polish radio station broadcasting a mix of news, chat and music. The Polish community is the second largest group in the UK after migrants from India and is well established. So much so that on phone-ins, Polish people tell Otto they are not concerned about the prospects of a Brexit. They say that uh, they are not afraid because... Uh, uh, they are already here, they pay taxes, they work here, and for them there will be not uh, any difference. Uh, maybe in the free movement, if they want to go somewhere into Spain, France for a holiday, uh, they maybe will apply some visa or something like this, but uh, to be honest, nobody knows what will happen. Fears about immigration have increased as Europe deals with the refugee crisis of those fleeing wars and poverty. There have been warnings a Brexit could lead to Calais-style refugee camps popping up in Britain as its European neighbours no longer prevent them travelling onto the UK. The prospect that Turkey could join the EU has also played into general fears the country has no control over who and how many come here from other EU countries. Hammering this message has been Nigel Farage, leader of the right-wing UK Independence Party, or UKIP, who recently put a bet on a Brexit outcome at the bookies. I mean, all around the country, all week, I've got to tell you, everywhere we go, people are saying they've made their minds up and they want to leave. He says other countries, including many from the Commonwealth, will benefit in the event of a Brexit. It would help them, because at the moment we are discriminating very heavily against them because of the open door to southern and eastern Europe and given the problems in the Eurozone. So I think what we'd have is a much more equitable, fair immigration system and I think particularly former Commonwealth countries will feel very encouraged by that. On the issue of immigration, opinion at the betting shop, like the country, is divided. The house prices is going very, very up. And the immigration is going up as well. So if you apply for a job, there's a lot of people already applying for a job. So I think we should leave the EU as soon as possible. Immigration, especially, uh, and house prices for the youngsters is, is quite a big issue for the country. And uh, I think it's probably one... Uh, so I'll be voting to go out. People would try and get into the UK, whether we were in the 
EU or not. It's an attractive place to live and work. Those arguing for the UK to remain inside the EU, like Prime Minister David Cameron, have found themselves on the defensive on the issue of immigration, arguing most migrants work and pay taxes, and the costs of leaving the bloc outweigh the benefits. Responding to questions from a TV studio audience, the Prime Minister said leaving the EU bloc was not the answer. And yes, we do need to do things to control immigration, like restricting in-work welfare, but it would be madness to try to do that by trashing our economy and pulling out of the single market. The arguments over what effect immigration has on Britain and how it will continue to impact the country will be a key factor as the nation decides whether its future lies in or out of Europe. Catherine Drew, London. To the U.S. now, where Republican Party presidential candidate Donald Trump has launched a blistering attack on his Democratic counterpart, Hillary Clinton, calling her a world-class liar. Trump chose one of his New York hotels as a location for the long-promised speech in which he said he would expose Clinton's business dealings. He also attacked the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump says will move millions of U.S. jobs overseas. But Clinton shot back in a speech of her own just a day after another speech in which she attacked her rival's business record. Nick Harper reports from New York. It's still five months until the election, but already things are getting ugly. Hillary Clinton may be the most corrupt person ever to seek the presidency of the United States. He attacked her for profiting from her career in politics, earning more than $20 million from two years of giving speeches, but also during her time at the State Department. Hillary Clinton has perfected the politics of personal profit and even theft. She ran the State Department like her own personal hedge fund, doing favors for oppressive regimes. He also took aim at Clinton's alleged support of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the signed but not yet fully ratified trade agreement involving 12 Pacific Rim countries. If she is elected president, she will adopt the Trans-Pacific Partnership and we will lose millions of jobs and our economic independence for good. She'll do this and... Just as she has betrayed the American worker and traded every single stage of her career. Trump used attack as the best form of defense after his tumultuous week in which he fired his campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. A few hours after Trump finished his speech, it was Hillary Clinton's turn. My speech yesterday must have gotten under his skin because right away he lashed out on Twitter with outlandish lies and conspiracy theories and he did the same in his speech today. Now think about it. He's going after me personally because he has no answers on the substance. In that speech, she warned a Trump presidency would destabilize the economy. Kicking out 11 million immigrants would cost hundreds of billions of dollars. And it would shrink our economy significantly. Some economists actually argue that just this policy alone would send us into a Trump recession. The gloves are now officially off, and the clash of the New York Titans is likely to get nastier. Nick Harper, New York. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all.
from July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. The Commission of South Africa has condemned the violent protests that have taken place in the country ahead of the municipal elections in August. IEC Chairperson Glenn Mashinini says the elections cannot be proclaimed free and fair while conditions leading to them are not conducive. Mashinini was addressing the media at the signing of the Electoral Code of Conduct in Johannesburg. Didaba Zodetsi was there. Glenn Mashinini has warned the political parties contesting the elections that acts of violence will not be tolerated. He says those parties found infringing the Electoral Code of Conduct will be disqualified. Several incidents have been reported in Gauteng where political parties were intimidated during their campaigning. Mashinini has appealed to political leaders to tell their members not to resort to acts of violence when campaigning. The Electoral Commission has noted with grave concern the rising level of violence and intimidation which are characterizing political and campaign activities ahead of our 2016 municipal elections. The Electoral Commission therefore condemns in strongest possible terms all unlawful conduct and any behavior which contravenes the Electoral Code of Conduct. The ANC has also pledged to abide by the Code of Conduct. Gauteng ANC Secretary Hupa has appealed to their members to be tolerant of other parties campaigning for the elections. We pledge to continue abiding by the Code of Conduct. Our commitment to work with the IEC and all stakeholders. We also pledge that in an event any of our members breach the Code of Conduct, we need information so that we act. Difficulties that sometimes when somebody is not a member, you cannot take actions. But for our members, we commit and we urge all our supporters and sympathizers to respect the Code of Conduct as in previous elections it has happened. The DA says that the IEC can only do justice to all political parties contesting for elections by conducting them in a free and fair manner. Party leader in Gauteng, John Moody, says that they will hold the IEC staff accountable if any incidents of unfairness are reported during and after elections. We furthermore hope and trust that the Electoral Commission will ensure that their staff, especially presiding officers at voting district level, conducts themselves in a manner that will ensure that freedom, that fairness and that opportunity will prevail at those VD stations. The National Freedom Party has condemned the leaders who make public comments that incite violence at the party's Gauteng chairperson, Begi Gumbi. We are urging all political parties to refrain from provoking species. We really hate that because local or ordinary members or followers, they don't take it uh, politically, they take it personal and cause some distraction that are very unnecessary. We as the NFP, we are committed to say our members must also conduct themselves. The IFP says now is the norm to sign the IEC's code of conduct, but still experience acts of violence ahead of elections. The party's Gauteng chairperson, Bonginko Sidlamini.
It has become a ritual in every election that we sign a code of conduct, but our history tells us that the parties are always breaching it because as you have seen in Tembisa and in Pretoria where there was intimidation and uh, the barring of other parties from campaigning in other areas, which is very bad, but it's good that all parties have committed publicly and we think that voters will hold them accountable so that they really adhere to the code of conduct so that we have a free and fair elections. In Gauteng, more than 6 million people have registered to vote in the 3rd August elections. in Johannesburg. There are renewed calls for law enforcement agencies to increase security as violent protests continue in and around the townships of Twane in South Africa. Although calm seems to have returned to some areas elsewhere, the protests are continuing. In the last 24 hours, police confirmed that two people were shot and killed whilst attempting to loot a store in Mamilodi. The eruption of violent protests followed the announcement by the ruling ANC that Togo Didiza is the party's preferred mayoral candidate for Twane Metropolitan Municipality in the upcoming local government elections. Residents are demanding that incumbent Josienzo Ramokhopa remains the mayor. Morafetabane has more. Renewed violence continues relentlessly in Twane, wreaking normal lives, especially for working residents. There's been a spate of destruction of businesses, buses torched, and in the last 24 hours, fatalities reported by police. Residents in Swani have made their demands clear, and the mantra on the ground is Ramakopa or no vote. However, the ANC's Women's League has thrown its weight behind the candidacy of Didiza. In Mamilodi, east of Pretoria, the situation remains volatile following chaotic scenes since Monday when disgruntled ANC members torched buses and barricaded roads. Some shops in Mamilodi were looted, but police were able to bring the situation under control. Meanwhile, hundreds of commuters in Hamanskral, north of Pretoria, have been left stranded as bus operations have been suspended in order to keep the fleet out of harm's way. This after three buses were torched on Tuesday. Jubilee Mall in the area had to be evacuated after management received a tip-off that angry protesters were planning to storm the shop. Finally, in Pretoria West, as a heavy police presence where a crowd of around 1,000 protesters were dispersed peacefully, over 40 police officers were on the scene. This as protesters threatened to go back to the streets where they were pelting past. A sentencing this week of a former Congolese rebel leader for crimes against humanity committed in the Central African Republic has been hailed by the United Nations as a sign of progress in global action to end impunity for wartime rape. The conviction of Jean-Pierre Bemba by the International Criminal Court came just days after the first commemoration of the International Day for the Elimination of Sexual Violence in Conflict observed on the 19th of June. Diane Pin reports on a panel discussion held at UN headquarters the day the judgment was delivered. The UN-backed court found Jean-Pierre Bemba guilty for allowing his forces to rape, murder and pillage during a 2002 armed conflict in the CAR. Leila Zerugi is the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict. We have come a long way. It is undeniable. And today's sentencing of uh, Jean-Pierre Bemba proves it. But unfortunately, sexual violence continues to be widespread. It is also still taboo in almost every society. 
and even more sensitive when it affects children and teenagers. It's important to remember too that women and girls are not the only ones brutalized by armed groups. A slideshow shown during the meeting also documented the shame and humiliation felt by men who have been raped. Here's Zainab Hawabangura, the UN's expert on sexual violence in conflict. Part of my mandate is bearing witness to often unbearable suffering. The youngest victim I have encountered was just three months old, and the oldest victim. Was a blind woman of 79 years. As the poet T. S. Eliot once wrote, "After such knowledge, what forgiveness, what justice or recompense can we offer for crimes whose human cost defies calculation?" Despite the Bamba judgment and other recent high-profile convictions, the fact remains that there is still a long way to go towards stamping out these crimes. Yadranka Segelia is a Bosnian-Croat lawyer and survivor of the systematic rape and sexual slavery which characterized the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. She spoke via video conference. I have to say, after speaking for 24 years, after telling my story over and over again, and at the same time seeing that the same crimes are being、uh, perpetrated at even higher rate and even higher scope, and、uh, after seeing all these women and children who are refugees at Croatian borders right now coming from a different continent, this all tells me that、uh, something is still very wrong, and that we didn't do enough to prevent that. Actress Danai Gurira has won fans for her portrayal of zombie-slaying Michonne in the cable television series *The Walking Dead*. She's written a play called *Eclipsed*, which tells the story of five Liberian women forced to marry a rebel commander during the country's 2003 civil war. She introduced the room to one of the characters, Helena. He called me over. He says, "Sit down." All the years I've been with him, he never have me sit down. Maybe sit on him. But he never sit me down to talk to me like human to human. I wanted to、Then、just encourage said, everyone to see storytellers like myself as your allies. We are fighting this epidemic, but just from a different angle. So the goal is to at least put a face and a voice to this issue and make the world know. Maybe you're coming in just to watch a play, but my goal is you walk out with a burden on your heart to know this is an issue you should be aware of. You should make sure that you don't ever look. At women and boys who go through this terror and this tyranny of sexual violence and conflict, as statistics, as things far from you. Danai Gurira said that at the end of each performance of Eclipse, the actresses say the names of women victims of sexual violence and conflict, such as the Nigerian schoolgirls abducted by the terrorist group Boko Haram in 2014. She said this is one way of ensuring that they are not forgotten. Diane Penn, United Nations. The rights of torture victims to seek treatment for the trauma they've experienced is often neglected, according to experts who work with these people. They say survivors sometimes find it hard to get help because some countries deny that they are being, they are torturing their citizens. Representatives from United Nations member states and non-governmental organizations discussed the obligation to assist torture victims at a recent event in Geneva. It was held ahead of the International Day in support of victims of torture, observed on the 26th of June. Carla Drisdale reports. 
Torture is prohibited by law, yet hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children are or have been subject to torture in public or in secret. Although these victims are legally entitled to rehabilitation and redress under Article 14 of the Convention Against Torture, they are often left without help unless non-governmental organizations help them. Here's Mikolai Petrak, a member of the Board of Trustees of the UN Voluntary Fund for Victims of Torture. The obligation to provide rehabilitation for torture victims is often neglected or not well implemented, either due to a lack of political will, financial resources, or not having the necessary skills. So NGOs often end up taking on this burden. Petrak was speaking at the Palais des Nations in Geneva at a side event of the UN Human Rights Council. The panel event, organized by the European Union delegation to the UN, as well as South Africa and Denmark, was supported by the UN Fund for Victims of Torture. Managed by the UN Human Rights Office in Geneva, the fund this year marks its 35th year of supporting the doctors, lawyers, and therapists who directly assist victims. Numfundo Mahapi, Executive Director at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation in South Africa, explained why prompt treatment for victims really matters, not only in the short, but in the long run. Unresolved trauma, both at an individual and collective level, actually perpetuate the cycles of violence and uh, become a hindrance for peace building. Mahapi explained the crucial role played by the fund in her organization. We wouldn't have done the work without their support. And that's why we really urge member states to continue contributing to UNVFET. Because our other challenge is that um, it's almost impossible for states to fund people who are tortured in their country because of the high levels of denial that there's no torture. So the only way in which we're able to get that funding, it is through UNVFVT, because then they help us to fund those people and support them. The panel discussion held 10 days ahead of the International Day in Support of Victims of Torture on June 26th comes amid an upswing in popular belief that torture can and even should be used sometimes, as in the fight against terrorism. Victor Matagrol Borlos, Secretary General of the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims, said this trend towards a casual acceptance of torture is a dangerous strike against human rights. It is very hard to turn on your television and not to find a show where a person is being interrogated under torture and giving out some fantastic information to foil a terrorist attack. I think that type of media is creating an environment where people are thinking and beginning to think that torture should be justified under certain circumstances. We are very worried about this, of course. Stavros Lambrinidis, EU Special Representative for Human Rights, explained the need for a sustainable security. We find many times that people who are tortured while in jail end up, when they come out, being more radicalized, not less radicalized, And that, of course, is not a way to build security. That is what sustainable security means, and that is what I do hope that that we will be able, both as European Union and with partners around the world, to instill in the debate uh, at the United Nations uh, level as we speak today. The speakers called on states to reaffirm their commitment to stop torture and to uphold the law in helping victims to obtain prompt rehabilitation and redress in order to regain their dignity and become productive members of society. Carla Drysdale, United Nations, Geneva. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you in the headlines. The United Nations says renewed violence is forcing thousands of people in the Central African Republic to flee to neighboring Chad and Cameroon. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission has sent a strong warning to political parties that acts of violence and intimidation during election campaigning will not be tolerated. And two foreigners kidnapped in southeast Nigeria have managed to escape. A former South African now living in New Zealand to Australia and two Nigerians were abducted after an attack on the vehicle which claimed the life of the driver. Those are the stories making headlines. South African cities are facing massive urbanization and are still struggling to transform from the apartheid spatial legacy. But while they've improved their financial reporting and audit findings, their revenue is still inadequate for them to deliver infrastructure and services, with some facing corruption and an increasing administrative burden. These are some of the findings of the state of South African cities in the last 15 years. The report is published every five years by the South African Cities Network. Tsepo Pahane has more. According to the United Nations, 54% of the world's population is already living in cities and this is said to increase to 66% by year 2050. Already the city of Johannesburg is suffering under serious strain with just under 10,000 people coming into the city each month. They need housing, electricity, water and access to transport. In its report, the South African Cities Network has found that South African cities have performed poorly when coming to spatial transformation. The network's Sitole Mbanga. We cannot maintain cities in the way in which they were designed. We need to redesign them and design them so that they can be able to cater for the future needs of the inhabitants of the city. Now, in the last 15 years or so, there's been very little that has happened towards the aim of spatial transformation. And part and parcel of the difficulty has been the fact that the more you transform, the more people come into the city. And at the same time, where you want to get land in order to spatial transform, the prices just continue to go up. People that are land owners and property owners on, on those areas where you want to specially transform, they just increase their prices leading to what is called by urbanists gentrification basically, the exclusion of poor people from spaces where otherwise they should be occupying. Johannesburg is one of the cities working towards achieving spatial transformation through its Corridors of Freedom initiative. This involves houses built close to public transport arteries and places of work, recreational facilities and other amenities. Jobek Mayor Pakstau. If you think about it and you think about cities that have comparable populations to ourselves, that are much denser in terms of their design and occupation. They use less to provide water through the networks than we use because we have to have distances of 10 kilometers between the inner city and Soweto. So you have literally 10 kilometers of dead space. You think about it, whether it's from a transport point of view, from a water network's point of view, these spaces that are not functional are spaces that create inefficiencies in the city. So we should use these spaces to create an increased density so that you have more people utilizing the infrastructure and therefore gain the urban efficiencies. 
Cities play a critical role in driving a country's economy, but according to the South African Cities Network report, the majority of urban dwellers are still socially, spatially, culturally and economically excluded. The report says cities should develop urban spatial frameworks that accommodate the needs of a growing population in terms of land, infrastructure, human settlements and transport. It says the current silo approach to planning and delivery is inefficient and increases the risk of exclusion. Deputy Cooperative Governance Minister Andres Nell. Many of our municipalities face serious problems with regard to financial sustainability. They are located in areas of the country, often rural areas, former homelands, where there's very little economic activity, there's very little tax base, and hence municipalities find it very difficult to, to raise their, their own revenue. That then also impacts on their ability to spend uh, grants. And for that reason, COCTA, through its Back to Basics program, is looking at capacitating those municipalities better, but also looking at more creative and innovative approaches, such as giving district municipalities much greater responsibility for shared services in those areas. That report by Tsepo Pahane. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa Zola Africa Amka na Unai Men's sexual health is in crisis in South Africa. as according to one pharmaceutical company which says the poor personal management of chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity and hypertension results in men suffering in the bedroom. It's estimated that one in five South African men suffer from erectile dysfunction and only a fraction seek medical help. June is Men's Health Awareness Month here in South Africa, as senior health journalist Tabilem Bella reports. Erectile dysfunction is a common condition that affects men. It's prevalent in men over 40. However, it now affects men in younger age groups. It's been linked to excessive alcohol intake, smoking, obesity, and lack of exercise, among others. Spokesperson for Pharma Dynamics, Dumi Mute, says erectile dysfunction has been on the increase over the past few years, and only about 20% of men seek medical care. It's estimated that 31% of men suffer from hypertension or high blood pressure. One in three have cardiovascular disease. 41% of South African men are considered obese and more than a quarter smoke. Mutsei says all these are factors that contribute to erectile dysfunction. Any man that is struggling with erectile dysfunction, it is important to go and see your doctor to get help. Because one other finding is that erectile dysfunction is linked to cardiovascular disease. And two to three years after presentation with erectile dysfunction, there is likelihood that the man will have a cardiovascular event. So it is important for them to get themselves managed sooner rather than later because their doctors will also address the long-term risks associated with erectile dysfunction. Mutze says the cost of treatment for erectile dysfunction has in the past prevented people from seeking medical care. 
However, the cost has come down in the past three years. A doctor at Men's Clinic International, Pumla Nilala, says they see patients aged 21 to 95 with weak erections, premature ejaculation and low sex drive. These patients have psychological problems such as stress, medical-related issues such as hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol and prostate problems, and then there's also been overweight, excessive use of alcohol and smoking. Out of 10 men that we see, six of them will suffer from weak erection problems, three of them will suffer from premature ejaculation or either both weak erection and premature ejaculation, and then it find one out of ten suffers from low libido or low sex drive. Lala says men want to self-medicate and buy medication that promises miracles on street corners, but these haven't been proven to work, thus exposing themselves to dangers of the side effects. He says they only get to Men's Clinic International when a lot of damage has been done, especially when it comes to enlargement of their private parts. Currently in South Africa, ma'am, there is nothing that can be done in terms of size unless if you undergo genetological operation. Unfortunately, the side effects that come along with that operation is that after that, you might find that it's, it's longer, but it doesn't erect anymore. So right now, it doesn't matter what the size is. The most important thing is that it must erect properly to the full extent, and it must not come quickly in such a way that the partner can reach orgasm. The health department has also encouraged men to change their attitudes and prioritize their health. Dr. Yogan Pillay, the deputy director general in the department, says men typically don't like to acknowledge that they have health problems. They don't talk about it and therefore do not seek medical care soon enough. In our context, uh, HIV and TB, men should get tested like women as frequently as possible, at least once a year. And if they are participating in multiple sexual partners, they should go more often. Men must condomize and condomize consistently uh, with all their partners. Men over the age of 40 should go at least once a year to check up on their prostate. And while they're there, they can check up on their blood pressure and uh, also diabetes, given that it's on the rise. Pillay says men should also change their lifestyles. Now, men should also eat well. And as you know, in our culture, men tend to eat more meat than vegetables. So we would like men to have a balanced diet uh, and not focus only on very rich protein uh, that you would find in meat. It's also critical that men exercise. On a positive note, though, some South African men have heeded the call to know their health status. Over 3 million men have been circumcised to minimize the risk of HIV infection. And out of the 18 million people who've been tested and screened under the HIV testing and counseling campaign, 30% of them are men. Those battling with sexual health problems can contact Men's Clinic International on 086-036-2867, 86 I'm Tabilem Pele in Johannesburg. India has launched 20 satellites in a single mission yesterday, the most in the history of its ambitious space program. Payloads ranged in weight from 727 kilograms to as little as 1.5 kilograms, which sent out signals that India was on its way to become a serious player in the multi-billion space market. Rana Sen has more from New Delhi. India's workhorse PSLV rocket blasted off with the satellites from five countries and in 26 minutes put those in orbit in a complex mission accomplished so far by Russia and the United States, rejoiced India's junior space minister Jitendra Singh. What a pleasant coincidence that yesterday only India led the entire world 
in the field of yoga and today we have proved that we are capable of leading the entire world in the field of space technology as well india has decisively emerged as a frontline nation as far as the diverse applications of space technology are concerned this has been evidently proved by today's launching the minister's attempted connection between india's signature cultural export and rocket technology was lost on national space agency's senior scientist k sivam as he unveiled future plans this mission it gives immense confidence to us to make commitment for much more complex missions and is carrying still larger number of satellites and too soon we will come out with a very large number of satellites to be launched in psle because we have the excellence available in isro so only we have to utilize that the us in 2013 placed 29 satellites in a single mission a year later russia in one shot put 37 satellites into orbit Space researcher Ajay Lele hoped the PSLV may break the world record in days to come. India's PSLV launcher has developed definitely a image and an impression in the minds of the people because we have done continuously more than 30 successful launches. So everybody understands that this not only going to be a cost effective but at the same time a very reliable launching system. And that's the reason people are looking at India as one of the major launching facility providers in the world today. Today's launch costs 60% of the western price tag which may fall further once India sharpened its single launch technology said astrophysicist C C Varam Future it will save a lot of money as i said resources earlier you know we had to launch uh, each of these missions separately we couldn't carry so many satellites so that way i think it's a uh, lot of progress saves a lot of uh, money and resources other countries will look forward to india to launch their uh, satellites whether for scientific or for uh, utility purposes economic purposes communication and so on so i think we'll look forward to more of these multi launches satellites put out today belong to india indonesia canada germany and the us one of them was built by a google owned firm which is capable of taking very high resolution images and high definition video this is rana sen reporting from new delhi our economic update up next with tamisa luhuko Thanks Balungile. South Africa's power utility Eskom has raised its wage offer to 7% in negotiations with the National Union of Mine Workers. The union's spokesperson Libuani Mamburu says they will seek a mandate from members. The offer is still below NUM's demand of a 15% increase for the least paid workers. State-owned Emeritus Global Aluminium has concluded its feasibility study on the development of its Sakini bauxite mine. The mine, due to begin operations in 2018, will help to secure supply of the aluminium ore for EGA's primary production facilities in the United Arab Emirates. Once up and running, the mine is expected to produce 12 million tons of bauxite a year. The government of Rwanda and the private sector have over the past year intensified campaigns aimed at encouraging citizens to consume locally made products. It has emerged that some firms are struggling to make the cut due to competition from illegal dealers. Simerwa, Rwanda's sole uh, cement producer, has asked the government for protection, saying local dealers are exporting its cement illegally. 
Two Africa-focused funds have created a new energy joint venture capable of generating 1.575 megawatts of electricity in at least 10 countries by merging assets totaling 3.3 billion US dollars. Chronic power shortages are one of the biggest obstacles to growth in countries across Africa. The deal to develop and finance projects brings together Lagos-based finance corporation in Africa and Harith General Partners, which has offices in South Africa and Ivory Coast. East African Breweries Limited has denied working with the state organs to frustrate rival Karachi breweries in the beer market. In documents filed in court, EABL denied using its clout in the market and state organs to unlawfully drive out competition, as alleged by Karachi. In April, Karachi had accused EABL, according to papers filed in court, of working with some state organs to lock it out of the beer industry using codename Aiden Breweries Limited. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.68 to the South African rand, 10.70 to Botswana Pula, 11.01 in Zambia, 6.8 British pound, 8.8 euro. Gold is trading at $1,265, platinum at $971 an ounce, brand crude $50, 1 cents a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with football news. Bafana Bafana will play in the Kosafa Cup final for the first time since 2008 this weekend after humiliating a 10-man Swaziland side 5-1 in the semi-final played at the same New York Stadium in Windhoek, Namibia on Wednesday night. Swaziland scored first through Tony Tabeze just before halftime, but South Africa replied through Tabiso Kutumela from a free kick early in the second half. Bafana Bafana head coach welcomed the clinical approach in the third final round. We knew that it's going to be a tough game. It won't be easy. The only thing that we're happy about is that we've won it and we've won it convincingly. When we started, we started on a house, like a house on fire. It's still the same problem. We're lacking composure. We're lacking converting our chances in front. But uh, individually and as a team, we're playing very well, though there are a few areas that we need to rectify. I think with time, all that will rectify. Swaziland's head coach, Harris Bulunga, says the sending off of Siabonga Mzuli in the 50th minute for the second bookable offence after having brought down Musia Medi on the edge of the box opened the floodgates. It was a difficult match for us. You could see from the onset that uh, South Africa were much fresher than us. So they came at us, but we managed to resist in the first 20 minutes. We got back into the game, we started playing our normal game, and we managed to find a goal. Uh, and we went to the interval leading. But uh, we disturbed early in the second half when we suffered a red card. 
and we were forced to make a change and also to play with nine players, uh, ten with the goalkeeper. It made things difficult for us because uh, we were already a tired team and 11 against 10 was always going to be difficult, so they capitalized on that. It's an embarrassing defeat if you look at the scoreline. South African athlete Stephen Mokoka has won a gold medal on day one of the Africa Sina Athletics Championships at the Kings Park Athletic Stadium in Durban on Wednesday night. He ran a tactical race in the men's 10,000-meter final to defeat the Kenyan Wilfred Kimitei in 28 minutes, 02.97 seconds, to claim his first African championship. Mokoka started the race unconvincingly, but his final kick in the last stretch was overwhelming for the Kenyan runner. The long-distance runner says he is improving in leaps and bounds. For me, I can say, uh, my, okay, I see that my, my last kilometer has improved. I managed to run at 2.35 today on the last K. Uh, all I need is to be able to, to, to run around 2.30 so that I can be competitive in the world. So I'm hoping that my coach saw that and then we'll work on that because normally I finish like 2.45, 2.40, but I managed to break five seconds. So I just hope we can work on another five seconds. I know it will take longer, but if I can work on that, I'll be able to be competitive in terms of the world stage. Mukoka will be going to the Olympics in Rio for the second time after he lost. He last featured in the London Games in 2012, where he disappointed. He says his target is to finish in the top 10, but also didn't rule out the possibility of a podium finish at the Global Games. Yes, I'm running the Olympics, but uh, the important thing for me is to finish top 10 because every championship, the best I ever ran in a championship was 13th place. So if I can be able to get inside top 10, I'll be very happy. Yeah, that's a, it's a boost. Yes, as I said, uh, I need to work on my last kilometer. If I can be quicker than today, uh, I think uh, something will happen at the Olympics. I can be, fin- be competitive. You know, when the, 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 the race is, 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 is slow, it's tactical, it's for everyone. So when it started to be slow, when I heard that we were moving around 250 pace, I was very happy that... Uh, I believe I can medal, not a gold medal, but I hope I thought of a medal. But um, eventually, God helped me to get a gold medal, so I'm very happy about that. In rugby news, Springbok prop Tendaim Tawarida says the team is still a work in progress and will get better in time. The most kept Springbok amongst the current group believes that valuable lessons have been learned by the team in the past two tests of the Castle Lager incoming series against Ireland and that they are ready to deliver their best performance at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth on Saturday in the series deciding test. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, definitely a thing of the past. I won't really say, uh, you know, frustrating, but it's just certain that's a work in progress. There's some certain, certain things that we just need to improve on. So, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so we just have to keep at it, and I'm sure the wall will break. So I think, yeah, this, uh, this final this Saturday is definitely going to be, you know, the pinnacle of what we have learned this couple of tests and we have to deliver in every facet of the game. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagaz and Kumutu Mupulani, technical producers Sihlin Dilbo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. We're taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to South Africa. Southern Africa is Yusundo with a song title Seven Seconds.